0: So just to do a quick recap, in the first session, we just went over um, New Testament and Old Testament timelines as far as the uh, Bible books are concerned, uh, where they fall in that timeline, and then um, introduced the, um, what, we, what we would be covering in the class. And we actually got into the meat of the class last week, last class, where we were discussing Uh, and presenting where um, uh, in the Old Testament, uh, the references to Jesus in the Old Testament. And so uh, again, we want to highlight and magnify um, the interaction uh, of the Old Testament with the New Testament relative to Jesus in order to give us more ammunition and uh, uh, knowledge and information and wisdom, uh, particularly when we're talking to unbelievers and they're questioning us with regard to, well, why do you believe? And you know, maybe maybe I'm a little bit sensitive to this, but one of the main things, uh, and, and maybe why I'm emphasizing it in this class was because of uh, how the prophetic word in the Bible impacted me. You know, and so one of the proofs of the word that it's authentic to me was okay. Where in the Bible does it say certain things, and then when did it come to pass? And so, when that stuff would happen, I couldn't—you can't deny that. You know? And so, I wanted to know those things. I wanted to know where scripturally, where is—you know—what's referencing what, and where can I find out? And so, we covered some things last uh, week. We saw that uh, things were written like uh, eight hundred years before they came to pass. You know, and so, um, and so those kind of things. For a person like me who thinks like me, that stuff is important. Because uh, again, one of my biggest issues was I did not want to be deceived by anybody. By people outside the church, by people inside the church, by people under the church, you know. I didn't wanna be deceived by anybody. And the only way to not be deceived is to arm yourself with the accuracy and the truth of the word and the onus is on you. It's not apostle's job, (laughs) you know, although he's going to be held to a higher standard, you know, but (laughs) it's not his job to make sure that you, in other words, you can't use him as an excuse when you're standing before the judgment seat of Christ. Well, pastor didn't tell me that's not gonna fly okay and so the onus is on us to make sure that we are armed with the truth and the accuracy of the word and that um, we do not get deceived because it says in the word it says many will be deceived in the final day it's not talking about unbelievers that's a warning to believers you know (laughs) And many of those people I think will be sincere believers. But I think they may be lazy because they didn't take the time to make sure that they were firmly grounded in the word. Because a lot of things out there can sound scriptural and they can sound biblical, they sound great but you can't find it in the word. Now, some of the concepts of the precepts may be there, <clears throat> but sometimes they're not. But people just, you know, say things that sound very, very holy. Mm-hmm. And sometimes we as believers, if we don't do our due diligence, we fall for it. Well, sometimes, sometimes <laughs> <a little laughs> you know, but again, the onus is on us. And so we're going to stay, or I'm going to stay, heavy on the Word. Okay? And, um, and that's how we're going to do this. So, tonight, hopefully, we'll get through this issue of Melchizedek, and um, we'll unpack Isaiah 53. Okay? And so that's what the, what the goal is, as far as our agenda for this evening. Now, this uh, Melchizedek dude, I remember the first time I went through the word and I came across this name. I had never heard it before from anybody. You know, I discovered it in a bathroom stall at Ford Motor Company, because that's where I was reading. <laughs> Melchizedek, I was like, what is this? And so then I started doing a little digging, a little investigation. And this is, what, 25 years ago or something like that? And, um, and then, then through the, through the years, you know, every time something gets preached on it um, or I hear somebody talking about it, my ears get perked a little bit because he's an he's a interesting cat, you know, and not much is said about him. And so that makes it to me even more mysterious with regard to who this guy is I still don't know who he is. There are, there are theories with regard to who he is, but, and they all sound, you know, they sound decent, they sound like, they sound plausible, but I don't know who he is. I think so. I think so. I don't know. Let, let, let's discover. Let's see. Let's see what the word has to say about this guy. So let's go to Hebrews chapter five. Okay. Now, before we start reading, let's let's back up a little bit, because, again, to me, context is very important. What is Hebrews? What, what is it about? Who authored it? Who wrote it? Where did it come from? You know, all that sort of thing. Nobody knows. Okay. <laughs> Nobody knows who there's suppositions, you know, Paul or said, no, it couldn't have been Paul. Well, maybe it was one of the other apostles. We don't know. We don't know who the author of Hebrews is, but we do know what the purpose of Hebrews was. At the time, there were a lot of Jewish Christians questioning whether this whole Jesus thing was worth the persecution. And so there was a trickling of Jewish Christians going back to Judaism. And so Hebrews is written to those guys. So Hebrews is written to to prove to them or to show them that no, this is a better way. Yes, it is worth it, you know, and don't look back, keep moving forward. So that is the whole purpose of the book of Hebrews. And so, Uh, it's been said that, and I think it's probably true that outside of Revelations, Hebrews is probably one of the most um, mentally challenging books to read, to ascertain, to comprehend. And so uh, it it can get pretty deep on you and you have to sometimes read it, the same scripture over and over to discover what's actually being said but unlike revelation you don't find much if any symbolism in hebrews and so the symbolism in Re- revelation is what drives me crazy because i'm like what are you talking about and so let's with that background let's go and so in verse 1 in chapter 5 it says for every high priest taken from among men is appointed in matters pertaining to god for the people to offer both gifts and sacrifices for sin. So this is talking about the Levites, you know. <clears throat> so what is clear is that the author of Hebrews has a very, very, very deep understanding of the Old Testament. And so uh, in verse two, it says he is able at priests, he is able to deal gently with those who are ignorant and are going astray since he is also clothed with weakness. Because of this. He must make an offering for his own sins as well as for the people. No one takes this honor on himself. Instead, a person is called by God just as Aaron was. So again, he's referring to the Old Testament Levites, the Levitical line of priests. In verse 5, in the same way, Christ did not exalt himself to become a high priest, but God who said to him, you are my son, today I have become your father. And so we see that in, in Well, let's go to Psalms. Uh, yeah, let's go to Psalms 2 verse 7. And it says this is David who has written this. I will declare the Lord's decree. He said to me, you are my son. Today I have become your father. So we see here that same duality where David is writing with regard to what he has experienced, but it's also referring to, to the future Christ. So if we go, um, so we see in five five, it says, you are my son. Today, I have become your father. This is in Hebrews 5. Verse 5 and verse 6 also says in another place, you are a priest forever according to the order of who? Melchizedek. Melchizedek. Okay, so it's saying that Jesus has become a type of Melchizedek. I don't think we see that anywhere else in the word with regard to except for the father. As far as Jesus being compared to. Verse seven, during his earthly life, he offered prayers and appeals with loud cries and tears to the one who was able to save him from death. And he was heard because of his reverence. Although he was the son, he learned obedience from what he suffered. After he was perfected, he became the source of eternal salvation for all who obey him. And he was declared by God a high priest, according to the order of who? So he says it twice. Right. So if you're a priest forever, according to the order of Melchizedek, he's referencing another scripture. But then he says again, you know, that that he was declared by God, a high priest, according to the order of Melchizedek. So who is this dude Melchizedek? Let's go to Genesis chapter 14. Go down to verse 17. Background. There's some fighting going on in the land. There are kings fighting kings and whatnot, taking prisoners and whatnot. And so uh, there was a fight, a war, and then uh, the conquerors took Lot. They took him prisoner. And so then uh, Abram gets a report from some guys, hey, they took your nephew, you know, he's, 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 he's taken. So then Abram says, okay, so he grabs his troops and he goes and he fights and he retrieves Lot. Now that tells me, first of all, this doesn't have anything to do with this, I just find it interesting. Kings were at war, right? Abram takes his crew and goes and defeats whoever has Lot to retrieve Lot. So that means that Abram must have been a pretty powerful person if he can go and defeat kings, right? I don't know that we always, I know I don't always think of Abram in those terms. You know, I mean, we knew he had some money because he had, you know, uh, he had um, livestock and, and other things, but according to this event, he was a bad dude, right <laughs> yeah, he was kind of gangster. I mean he, he says, what? they got one of your homies, they got one of you. He's like, "Oh no, you know, and then he went and retrieved his homie I mean that that's what happened. that's what the word says. You don't believe me, you want to read it? <laughs> That's exactly what it says. It says, when Abram heard that his relative had been taken prisoner, he assembled his 318 trained men born in his household, uh, and they went in pursuit as far as Dan. And they, oh, and he and his servants deployed against against them by night, defeated them, and pursued them uh, north of Damascus. He brought back all the goods all, um, and also his relative Lot, his goods, as well as the women and the other people. So yeah, he went gangster. He went and he got his stuff back. He says, no, this will not stand. You know? After that occurred, that is when this occurs. After Abram returned from defeating whatever his name is, and the kings who were with him, the king of Sodom went out to meet him uh, in the Sheva Valley, that is the king's valley. Melchizedek, king of Salem, Brought out bread and wine. He was a priest to God most high. He blessed him and said, before I get into this, so kings were at war. So there were several kings on each side. And so these kings, uh, you know, four or five of them were defeated by the other guys. But Abram went (laughs) and got his stuff back. And so the king of Sodom and the king of Salem are coming out, basically, you know, to, uh, I would, you know, at least the king of Sodom to say thank you. And so we go on here. Verse 19, he blessed him and said, Abram is blessed by God, most high creator of heaven and earth. And so this is Melchizedek talking to Abram. He says, you are blessed by God, most high creator. You know, God, most high, the creator of heavens and earth and blessed be God, most and blessed be God, most high who has handed over your enemies to you. And Abram gave him a tenth of everything. So Abram tithed to Melchizedek. And so if you just read that and just keep it there, nothing else is said in the Old Testament anyway. And then you got to go to Hebrews chapter 7 for the author to start really unpacking the significance of this. So let's go to Hebrews chapter 7. And as I was going through this, I was trying to see, okay, what can I copy and paste? And we're going to do the whole thing (laughs) because it can't be done. The title in my Bible says the greatness of Melchizedek. Chapter seven, verse one for this Melchizedek, king of Salem, priest of God, most high met Abraham and blessed him as he returned from defeating the kings and Abraham gave him a tenth of everything. First, his name means king of righteousness. Also, king of Salem means king of peace, righteousness and peace. Who does that refer to? Jesus. Verse three, without father or mother, this is talking about Melchizedek, without father or mother or genealogy, having neither beginning uh, of days nor end of life, but resembling the son of God. He remains a priest forever. Carl asked the question, is he still alive? (laughs) This is referring to who? No, it says here without father or mother or genealogy, having neither beginning of days nor end of life, but resembling the son of God, he remains a priest forever. Who's it referring to? Melchizedek. Ooh. Jesus has a genealogy. It's covered in detail. When I get to that part, I skip over it. Because <laughs> it goes through everybody. You know? <laughs> People that are only mentioned in in that in that list. First four. Now, consider how great this man was. Who's this referring to? Melchizedek. Even Abraham, the patriarch, gave a tenth of the plunder to him. The sons of Levi who received the priestly office have a command according to the law to collect a tenth from the people, that is from their brothers and sisters, though they have also descended from Abraham. And so when the tribes were set up, the 12 tribes of Judah, you know, Levi didn't get any land or Levi didn't get any land because they were designated the priests and they were to be tied to by the others, the other tribes. And so their priestliness was based on lineage, right? right? And so if you were born in the order of Levi, then you were a priest. And so it says here they all descended from Abraham, but Levi was singled out to be the priest. In verse six, but without this lineage, but without this lineage. Collected a tenth from Abraham and blessed the one who had the promises. So this is saying, look, the tribes came from Abraham. But Melchizedek didn't. Yet he collected a tenth from Abraham. But this wasn't set up until the priestly tribe was set up. So this predates that. So, again, the author is trying to show the reader why why the new covenant that we call it, you know, or the new order is better than the old order. So he's stating his case. So he's saying this 10th thing, this tie thing, this predated the Levitical tribe being set up as as priests for for the nation. But one without this lineage collected a tenth from Abraham and blessed the one who had the promises. Without a doubt, the inferior is blessed by the superior. So this is saying that Abraham was inferior to Melchizedek. Again, the perspective of the author hes putting forth his case. This is what the deal is. Verse 11. Now, if perfection came through the Levitical priesthood, for on the basis of it, the people received the law, what further need was there for another priest to appear? So he's stating, he said, look, if this law that you have is so great, Why is it pointing to something else? What further need was there for another priest to appear, said to be according to the order of whom? And so things are pointing to this other priesthood, which is Jesus but he's saying here that this is according to the order of Melchizedek and Melchizedek was superior to Abraham. Does that make sense? Said to be according to the order of Melchizedek and not according to the order of Aaron and not according to the order of the Levites. See, they based their whole life and structure around, um, you know, bringing their uh, sacrifices to the Levite, to the Le- Levitical priests. And, you know, everything was the Levites were the were the priests and the, the spiritual leaders and this, that, and the other. You know, and the case is being made here for the Jewish Christians thinking about going back to that system that no, 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 no. This is why this system is better. Let's see. My thing kept scrolling and now. Ah, okay. For when there is a change of the priesthood, there must be a change of law as well. For one of these things are spoken about, belong to the different tribe. No one from it has served at the altar. Now it is evident that our Lord came from Judah. And Moses said nothing about that tribe concerning priests. Everything from Moses with regard to priests was from the Levites. In verse 15, and this becomes clear if another priest like Melchizedek appears. So again, he's stating the case for Jesus. He's saying, and this, and this becomes clearer. If another one like Melchizedek, the one I've been telling you about, if another one like him appears, then you'll get a clear perspective on what the truth is. And this becomes clear if another priest like Melchizedek appears. I think the author is purposely putting that if in there because, again, he's stating his case. He's he's amping up. (laughs) Verse 16. Well, let me go. And this becomes clear if another priest like Melchizedek appears who did not become a priest based on a legal regulation about physical descent, but based on the power of an indestructible life. So imagine if you are one of those Jewish Christians and you're sitting and you're hearing this. Or you're reading this. If you are sincere in your search, the appeal that's being made has got to be compelling. Verse 17, for it is testified, you are a priest forever according to the order of Melchizedek. So the previous command is annulled based um, because it was weak and unprofitable. Now, imagine that. Let's put ourselves in their position. And let's say we've structured our lives around, you know, our belief in the Lord Jesus Christ and, and, and all that that entails and everything. And somebody comes along and says that everything that you believe is weak and unprofitable. This is the position that they were in, hearing this stuff, right? (laughs) And so I don't condemn, like, the Old Testament believers or unbelievers because I try to put myself in that situation and see how would I respond, you know, if somebody was saying some of this stuff. How would I respond if some of what Jesus said to others, if he said it to me? He wasn't exactly... uh, politically correct in some of his statements. <clears throat> so the previous command is annulled because it was weak and unprofitable for the law perfected nothing. <laughs> what you believed in was useless. That's essentially what he's saying. Now remember, they had, they had eyewitnesses of God's miracles, right? I mean, not these here, but the old Israelites, they had, they, had, they had the parting of the Red Sea. They had the flame from the sky. They had the plagues in Egypt. They had all this stuff that they were eyewitnesses to. And that was all structured around, eventually structured around the law as Moses descended from the Mount with the commandments and all of the other regulations. So essentially, if that was me, i say, okay, I witnessed all of this because of this, because of these rules. That's what I would conclude, right? He's saying, that's useless. <laughs> Mm. For the law perfected nothing, but a better hope is introduced through which we draw near to God. Let me back up to 18. It says, because it was weak and unprofitable. That I said useless. That doesn't necessarily mean that it was useless. As I read again, maybe it wasn't. As potent as it could be, you know, because he's saying what? He's saying a better way to get to God is what I'm talking about. Says oh, he does? <laughs> I didn't know that. <laughs> but he does say in verse 19, but a better hope is introduced through which we draw near to God. Verse 20. None of this happened without an oath for others became priests without an oath. This is talking about the Levites. You you were born. You're going to be a priest. (laughs) But he became a priest with an oath, but he became a priest with an oath made by the one who said to him, the Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. You are a priest forever okay now this is referring to jesus but in the other scripture the same thing was said but it was referring to melchizedek in verse 22 because of this oath jesus has also become the guarantee of a better covenant I just had a thought here. It would depend on the translation, I guess. Because of this, Jesus has also become a guarantee of, I would have written the only covenant. But it says a better covenant. Okay, verse 23. Now many have become Levitical priests since they are prevented. Uh, by death from remaining in office. So obviously, if you're going over centuries, you know, you're going to have many priests because people are going to be born and they're going to die. Verse 24, but because he remains forever, he holds his priesthood permanently. Therefore, he is able to save completely those who come to God through him since he always lives to intercede for them. And so this, again, is referring to Jesus, saying that Jesus is uh, alive forever. And therefore, he has the ability to make permanent intercession, you know, for us at the right hand of the Father God. Verse 26, for this is the kind of high priest we need, holy, innocent, undefiled, separated from sinners and exalted above the heavens. He doesn't need to offer sacrifices every day as high priests do first for their own sins, then for those of the people. He did this once for all time when he offered himself. One sacrifice, potent enough for all time. For the law appoints a high priest, for the law appoints as high priests men who are weak. But the promise of the oath, which came after the law, appoints a son who has been perfected forever. And so we see here the relationship with still many questions regarding Melchizedek and Jesus. I have read that some people think Melchizedek was a pre-incarnate Jesus; that they are in fact one and the same. I don't. I don't know. I don't know where where, where you stand on this, but it, it could be. Doesn't disrupt the word. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Just because the King of Salem is the King of Jerusalem, mm-hmm. the King of Righteousness is reference also mm-hmm. Jesus. So, that would be my kind of so we see here that again we just have a brief, a very brief section in the Old Testament mm-hmm. regarding Melchizedek that gets expanded in Hebrews in the New Testament. Okay. And so in other words, in order to get a more complete, rounder picture, you need both. Right? You need both. You need to understand the times and the context of which Melchizedek came out to meet Abraham. You don't get that in, in Hebrews. But you don't get the expansion of who Melchizedek was in the Old Testament. You get that in the New Testament. Okay. And so that is the, um, I have exhausted my knowledge on Melchizedek. You know, you, know, you know, I still continue to listen and read whenever I hear the name, you know, and, and, and trying to, to ascertain exactly uh, uh, the completeness of, of, of who he, I would say, was, but I, I guess I would have to say who he is. Yeah. and so again I find this stuff fascinating but anyway <clears throat> with that let's go to Isaiah 53 first again context Who is Isaiah? Where did he come from? You know, what is he doing? Timeline, this is around 750 B.C., 740 B.C., 700 B.C., 800 B.C., somewhere in that vicinity, okay? It's in in the vicinity of when the northern kingdom fell, okay? Somewhere in this timeline, that's where we are. And so I was thinking about this earlier. Uh, Back in the um, early 70s is when I first became aware of tensions between the US and the Soviet Union. And so uh, I was 12 years old and I remember distinctly thinking that why a 12 year old knows anything about nuclear missiles, I don't know. But I just thought that missiles were gonna be flying and we were all gonna be vaporized. OK. And so I was thinking this morning or this afternoon, I said, so what if the Soviet Union through Kamchatka, which is up by um, Alaska, invaded, uh, you know, came over into the U.S. and down into Canada and then started taking over Canada and then Toronto and then they take over Windsor. And what would we be feeling? In that situation would you think that there would be a little bit of unease with regard to what is going to happen well that's kind of where the Judeans were with regard to the Assyrians taking over Israel the northern kingdom and they were wondering what what's the deal are we gonna be nice (laughs) I mean if your brothers are taken over to the north you know wouldn't you think that it would make rational and logical sense that you might be next? And so it was in this environment that Isaiah is speaking, okay? The people are afraid. They don't know what's going on. And so if we go to chapter 6, then we see, again, this is just background. So uh, where do I want to start. And so, let me go to verse 4. It says, the uh, foundations of the doorway shook, and the sound of their voices, and the temple was filled with smoke. Then I said, I be in Isaiah, woe is me, for I am ruined, because I am a man of unclean lips, and live amongst people of unclean lips. And so, a holy presence came in, and Isaiah saying, woe is me. I can't, I shouldn't be here. <laughs> I'm not. I'm not clean. I'm not pure enough to be here. And so, uh, and because my eyes have seen the king, the Lord of armies, it goes on, and it goes down to verse 8 and says, Then I heard the voice of the Lord asking, Who should I send? Yes, who should I send? Who will go for? Oh, let me back up. Let me go back to verse 6. It says, Then one of the seraphim uh, flew to me, and his hand was glowing, uh, and his hand was a glowing coal that he had taken from the altar with tongues he touched my mouth and with it said now that uh, this has touched your lips your iniquity is removed and your sins are atoned for and so we see that uh, in this process isaiah is recognizing how sinful he is but then a supernatural heavenly creature comes down and cleanses him makes atonement for him essentially says you are pure now uh, then In verse eight, it says, then I heard the voice of the Lord asking, who should I send? Who will go for us? And Isaiah says, I said, here I am, send me. And so that's, you know, we're all familiar with this scripture, but just the background of of what was going on and how did they get to this point? You know, Isaiah has just been cleansed by the heavenly creature. And then so it seems like a rhetorical question. Well, who should we sit? <laughs> <You know? laughs> well, I guess you cleansed me. So here I am. Send me. <laughs> you know. <laughs> and he replied, go say to these people, this is the Lord, go say to these people, keep listening, but do not understand. Keep um, keep looking, but do not perceive, you know. And so he's telling he's essentially giving Isaiah his assignment. Go tell the people whatever I tell you to tell them. That's what your job is. Isaiah says, okay. And so, through the book of Isaiah, this is what he's doing. You know, he's prophesying what the Lord gives him. Now, with that backdrop, we go to Isaiah 53. All right, let's go to first three. So Isaiah has been prophesying and prophesying and in chapter 52 uh, verse, I forget what verse it is. It starts to turn and he starts prophesying about the things of the Lord to come. And so, and in verse 13 in chapter 52 is when his prophecies switch. And start talking about Jesus. He says, see, my servant will be successful. He will be raised and lifted up and greatly exalted. He says his appearance will be so disfigured that they they will not look on him, so on and so forth. And so if we go to verse 3, it says, he was despised and rejected by men, a man of suffering who knew what sickness was. He was like someone people turned away from. He was despised and we didn't value him. Okay. Let's go to Mark eight thirty one. It says, Then he began to teach them that it was necessary for the son of man to suffer many things and be rejected by the elders, chief priests and scribes, be killed and raised after three days. So we see here in Isaiah 53, verse three, um, the prophecy of what is to come. Okay, and then we go to Mark and we see that it's referring to that same thing. So, again, we have the New Testament uh, leveraging Old Testament scripture. If we go down to verse four, it says, yet he himself bore out our sicknesses. He cried out or he carried out our pains. But we in turn regarding him as stricken, struck down by God and afflicted. So if we go to Matthew 8, 17. so that what was spoken through the prophet Isaiah might be fulfilled. Well, if we back up, it says, Jesus went to Peter's house and he saw his mother-in-law lying in bed. So he touched her with her hand and had her get up. When the evening came, they brought him to many who were, uh, demon, uh, who were demon-possessed. He drove out the spirits with the word and healed all who were sick. So, that he, so he healed all that were sick, so that what was spoken through the prophet Isaiah might, uh, might be fulfilled. He himself took our weaknesses and carried our diseases. And so we see here that Jesus went about the process of healing everybody so that prophecy would be fulfilled. The the prophecy being that he would take on our weaknesses and carry our diseases. Let's go to verse 5. But he was pierced because of our rebellion crushed because of our iniquities, punished for our peace was on him, and we are healed by his wounds. Or stripes, as it says in some other translations. Okay, let's refer to a couple of scriptures here. Let's go to Romans four twenty five. And it says, "You know, you're getting old. That is too small." for He was delivered up for our uh, trespasses and raised for our justification. So we see he was he was delivered up. You know, he was essentially raised on the cross for our trespasses um, and for our justification. Then if we go to 1 Peter 2.24, it says, He himself bore our sins in, um, in his body on the tree so that having died to sins, we might live for righteousness. And so we see here that uh, in Romans, or excuse me, in Isaiah 53, verse 5, it's being uh, prophesied what's going to happen. We see here in 1 Peter that Peter is referring to what did happen, right? Let's go to verse 7. Isaiah 53, verse 7. It says... He was oppressed and afflicted, yet he did not open his mouth. Like a lamb led to slaughter, and like a sheep silent before her shears, he did not open his mouth. So we see here an emphasis on <clears throat> regardless of the pressure that he was under, he did not open his mouth. He did not try to defend himself. Matthew 27. Verse 12. While he was being accused by the chief priests and elders, he didn't answer. And So we see here again, the prophetic word from Isaiah goes forth of what would happen to Jesus and how he would respond. And we see here in Matthew how he did respond. Uh, He was essentially being uh, accused and and lied on, uh, falsely accused by the um, chief priests and elders. But he did not say anything. Verse nine, Isaiah 53. He was assigned a grave with the wicked, but he was a man. but, But he was with a rich man at his death because he had done no violence. He had not spoken Deceitfully Matthew twenty seven fifty seven When it was evening, this is after, um, after Jesus died on the cross. It says, when it was evening, a rich man from Arimatha named Joseph came, who himself had also become a, um, a Jesus disciple or a disciple of Jesus. So the word says, the prophetic word in Isaiah says, a rich man will come. And here in Matthew 27, that rich man was Joseph. Then it says in 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 22 It says, he did not commit sin and no deceit was found in his mouth. So again, it said a rich man would come in Isaiah 53, verse 9, it says a rich man would come and and then no deceit would be found in him. And then we see here between Matthew 27, 57 and 1 Peter 22, um, that, uh, that prophetic word is fulfilled. Again, in 22, it says, he did not commit sin and no deceit was found in his mouth. Okay, let's go to verse 11. No, of uh, Isaiah 53. Sorry. After his anguish, he will see light and be satisfied. By his knowledge, my righteous servant will justify many, and he will carry their iniquities. We're going to reference a, cu- a couple of scriptures. Let's go to 1 John chapter 2. It says in verse one, my little children, I am writing you these things so that you may not sin. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the father, Jesus Christ, the righteous one. See, So it says here. In verse 11. Says, by his knowledge, um, by his knowledge, my righteousness, my righteous servant will justify many. And so we see here that. Um, in First John, that even though, he says, do not sin, but if you do, all is not lost. You still have an advocate, all is not lost. My little children, I am writing you things so that you may not sin, but if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the Righteous One. Let's go to Romans 5.18. So then, as through one trespass, there is condemnation for everyone, that one trespass being through Adam. So every, everyone was condemned through Adam. So also, through one righteous act, there is justification leading to life for everyone. So we see in, in uh, Isaiah fifty three eleven, it refers to many being saved through him. And we see here in Romans 5 that um, uh, Paul is, is, is writing to the Romans um, to basically tell them, educate them with regard to all that was accomplished on the cross, basically. Let's go to verse 12 in Isaiah 53. Therefore, I will give him the many as a portion, and he will receive the mighty as a spoil. That's very poetic. (laughs) Therefore, I will give him the many as a portion, and he will receive the mighty as a spoil because he willingly submitted to death and was counted among the rebels yet he bore the sin of many and interceded for the rebels let's go to Matthew 26:42 again a second time He went away and prayed, Father, if this cannot pass, uh, Father, if this cannot pass unless I drink it, your will be done. Obviously, this is not something that Jesus, you know, was looking forward to. It says here in verse 12 in Isaiah 53, he willingly submitted to death. And we see that in in Matthew 26, 42, he says, if it be your will, Father, so be it. He didn't have to do that. Jesus didn't have to do any of this stuff. He could have, you know, I don't know how many of you have had a situation where it wasn't exactly pleasant, you weren't looking forward to dealing with it or confronting it or whatever, but you said, okay, I gotta do it. And so you go forth to do it, and at the final moment, you chicken out. Has anybody ever done that before? (laughs) At the last hour, you say, (laughs) psych. Jesus could have done that because it says he was fully human right but he said no your will be done you know sometimes I don't don't think we recognize Jesus' humanity he he didn't have to do a lot of this stuff yeah But it says in verse 12 here, it says, because he willingly, which means that his will was in operation. Right. Because he willingly submitted to death. This is why he will receive, you know, the many as a portion and the mighty as a spoil. Implies that if he didn't do this, he wouldn't have received those things, right? Right? But he did. Let's go to Luke 22. Verse 37. For I tell you, what is written must be fulfilled in me, in, uh in me and he was counted among the lawless right? and so it says in isaiah 53 verse 12 that he would be he was counted amongst the rebels right i don't know what it says in other translations but essentially uh but we see here in luke 22 that he was in fact counted amongst the lawless rebels outlaws whatever you want to however you want to label it <laughs> So again, Isaiah 53, verse 12, is prophesying what will happen. And we see here in Luke 22, um, in 37, what did happen. Let's go to Hebrews 9, 28. So also Christ, having been offered once to bear the sins of many, will appear a second time, not to bear sin, but to bring salvation to those who are waiting for him. So we see in um, Isaiah 53, 12, uh, he was counted kind of among the rebels, yet he bore the sin of many, and then she, z- 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 therefore... So the many are given as his portion. So we see here that in uh, in, Hebr- in Hebrews chapter nine, again Hebrews. This is written. It's written probably about. It's written probably about fifty or sixty years after Jesus, after his death, and so. Um, so we see here that um, Isaiah is writing this in 7 750 BC and it's being fulfilled like in Hebrews here's like so this is probably around 80 85 90 AD so this is a good 800 plus years something like that and we already read this but we'll go to it again Hebrews 7:25 Therefore, he is able to save completely those who come to God through him since he always lives to intercede for them. And so we see that that is also a fulfillment of prophecy from Isaiah 53 in verse 12. And so these scriptures are important not only for us to internalize for our own edification, but uh, again, you know, when when we're out there dealing with people and, you know, they they have sincere questions, um, we should be able to go to the Word, you know, and to be able to say, well, it says here that this will happen. And if you look here, this is when it happened. And oh, by the way, that was about 800 years, you know, (laughs) And so, so to have an understanding of the prophetic word and the fulfillment of the word and the timelines, you know, so that people can get an idea. I mean, just think about it. Uh, how, think about this is a wild thought. Think about the year 2900. We're in 2021 right now. That's 880 years from now, which is roughly what we're talking about here. Right? Isn't that wild? I mean, <laughs> can you even comprehend? I mean, I don't even know if, you know, Jesus may have come back before then. I have no clue, you know. But just to think, 2,900, you know, how everybody freaked out when we turned to a, a Y2K. Right? Y two nine k. I mean, I mean that, you know what I mean? Or Y two point nine k. I guess it would be. I mean, that that's crazy. That's crazy. That's that's probably eight, about fourteen, fifteen, or sixteen. No, no, it's probably more like twenty. 24 25 generations from us. We're talking about your great 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 and praise God, there still be a godly lineage going on from us at that time. With that, we are done for the evening. And like I told you, I don't believe in filling time just for the sake of filling time. <laughs> so, you know, you get what I got, and it's over. It's over. <laughs> 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 yeah. <laughs> All right. Uh, no, I'm just saying. You know, I've been in classes before where where you can tell people are filling, stretching things out, right? And it's like, no, just, just you know, when you're done, you're done. You know? <laughs>